When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, well, that he was still alive. After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, so go. Make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb Behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And because of the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid. Because I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here because He is risen, just as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. And then go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. Behold, He's going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. You see, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy Him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end. 
of the age. Blessed is the reading of God's holy Word. You may be seated. Father, You are so good. That is objectively true. The gift of Your Son has testified to it. Oh, but may we taste it. May we experience it. May we welcome Your goodness in this place more than we ever have. Oh, may we be those who, though not yet, have we touched Your Son physically in His resurrected body. May we be those who grasp hold of Him this morning again together. And worship our risen Savior. Be doing this, I pray, Father, in the next 35 minutes. To the glory of Jesus, the Messiah. The only Savior of sick sinners like us. Amen. Amen. This text that I just read... From Matthew 27 and 28, the Apostle Paul, 25 years later, looking back on that event, commented on it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Not only that, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. This is the conclusion of Holy Week. The holiest week of the year. This indeed is the holiest day on the Christian calendar. Because Christianity, it is founded upon the person and the sacrificial atoning, propitiatory death and the real, historical, bodily, resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of Christianity. Whether any of you believe it or not, it testifies that Objectively, this happened in history. Your feelings about it, your thoughts about it, are irrelevant to whether that is true or not. We dropped a massive bomb this week on a bunch of ISIS guys. And I hear reports up to 90 of them were killed. If you haven't heard that yet, where you have is irrelevant. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant. It is either a lie or it's true. This is what we mean by the resurrected Christ. We don't mean to say to me, maybe not to you, He's raised from the dead. With that said, here's the next statement I'm going to focus on. Christianity, meaning this, we sinners 
who become Christians or experience salvation in Christ, that is a subjective, supernatural experience. Being saved by the historical fact of the resurrection is supernatural with the objective historical fact. And you see, this is why throughout the centuries until today, people can have the strongest historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and still not believe. We can see this in the passage I read about the Jewish leaders who put Jesus to death. After getting Rome to torture Him, to nail Him to a cross, we read in Matthew 27 that they taunted Him. He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. Would they? If He did come down on His own from the cross right in front of them, would they have believed in Him? No. Not to be saved. They wouldn't have. By the next day, they would have had excuses of what really happened. We can see this in Matthew 28. When they're in Jerusalem and they hear the testimony of a number of the guards who were at the tomb about what actually happened with the earthquake with an angel, with the stone, massive, huge stone being rolled away, they did not fall down on their face and say, oh, we blew it. We were wrong. We now believe in Jesus of Nazareth. He must be the Messiah, the Son of David. That's not how they responded. Let's read it again. Matthew 28, start with verse 11. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel and gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, Tell people this. His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy Him with a huge sum of money and will thus keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. All the evidence in the world about the resurrected Christ, even coming from the guards, four of them, Six of them? I don't know. They didn't even all come, but a plurality of them came. And it wasn't all the guards that were there to testify. This is what happened. All the evidence in the world is not sufficient. It's necessary to have the testimony. But it is not sufficient to change the minds and the hearts of unbelievers. Because the problem of all of us born of Adam, born into this world, is much deeper than we can possibly imagine. So if, if we think that Christianity or salvation in Christ is a simple matter of giving people the strong historical evidence of the resurrection from the dead, and then giving them a three or four point presentation on now how you go about getting yourself saved by it and convince them to pray with us and ask Jesus into your heart and this is Christianity. If that's what we think, then we don't have a clue about what we sinners are truly up against. 
The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 describes the hardness of heart of every one of us sinners born into this world. It's true of the Christian that he's writing to, of any of us who are believers now, this was where our heart was. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, which is owing to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He's saying that our fallen human hearts, they are so rock hard that every one of us in here, just like the Jewish leadership, can reject and can crucify the sinless Son of God. Any of us who think, well, not really me. My sin didn't put Jesus on the cross and nail Him there. If that's what you think, then you do not yet understand the depth of your own sin. And so what we see in our text of Matthew 28 in the Jewish leadership are our representatives. Even though Jesus for almost three years went about doing good and healing the sick, He was a threat. He was a huge threat to the position and the power of the Jewish hierarchy and to religious, fundamentalist, legalist who took pride in their religiosity. And so, they arrested Him They trumped up false charges against Him. They spit into His face. They slugged Him in the mouth. They had Pilate rip His back to shreds with the Roman whip. And it wasn't enough. Kill Him! No, no, no. We can release a prisoner. And so they said, give us... And the one They hated Barabbas. Scumbag. We'll take Barabbas. Crucify this Jesus on a Roman cross. They had plenty of evidence for a long time that Jesus was their promised Messiah. It's public. His ministry was public. Thousands of people were being miraculously healed. Blind people were seeing. Deaf people were hearing. A few having been substantially dead enough to not just have someone pound on their heart and make it come back were raised from the dead by the word of this man. Jesus, just, just, just right before all of this happened in His death, Lazarus, down the road there, was raised from the dead and word spread. You've been around a dead body? It's been dead for three hours? I have. How about four or five hours? It gets colder and harder. How about 24 hours? 48, 72 Think you can get the paramedics to bring it back yet? Okay, add another day to that. And then Jesus said in front of many people, Come out, Lazarus. 
Jesus constantly invited His skeptics to examine the Scriptures. And notice, they testify of everything you're seeing in Me. He read Isaiah 6 in the synagogue that day. A messianic, son of David, passage. And he sat down and he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they wanted to, again, kill The whole point is they had all kinds of testimony, all kinds of witness right before them. There's the evidence. And they refused to recognize Him and to believe. Why? Jesus says why in the glorious John 3 passage. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever will believe in Him will have eternal life. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This is the testimony that God's judgment has come into the world because there are those who love the darkness more than the light. That's why they don't come to Me. Because of the hardness of their heart. No matter the testimony. Jesus meant it in His story. Send someone back from the dead and warn my brothers. Even if they were raised from the dead and said you better repent, they wouldn't. That's the state of the fallen human heart. Here's the point. Every one of my children were born into this world in darkness with a dead, hard heart. Every human being outside of Jesus that was ever born was born that way. And because of that, what we see throughout history is that that heart, mixed with its pride in its intellect, will accept flimsy, even stupid excuses that would dismiss the eyewitness testimonies of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders, when they hear these soldiers who had no dog in the race, this is what happened, didn't even pause to think about the implications of what they said, but immediately went into damage control, concocting a silly story, getting a lot of money, and paying them off. And say this to people. And what they were told to say is so stupid. Think about it. If all these guards were sleeping, how would they know who stole Jesus' body? Okay, let's push a little bit further. Under Roman law, grave robbery was a very serious crime. Okay? So now you've got to believe that these guys... Okay. Those guys that fled in the garden? Peter who denied Him and fled in the high priest's courtyard? Who, who in the last 16 hours of Jesus' life were nowhere to be found because of fear for their lives? We're supposed to believe that just a couple of days later, they had enough nerve now to go to the tomb where there are guards with the power to kill them. And they're going to sneak up right before the sun comes up. And they notice, look at that, they're asleep. Let's tiptoe by them and break the seal 
and together move this massive, huge stone and go take Jesus' body away, all the while not waking any of these guys up. That's what we're supposed to believe. But Okay, let's just assume the stupidity of that actually happened. Then these same timid, fearful guys who stole the body, so they know he didn't rise from the dead, had enough guts somehow to go into Jerusalem, into the temple, in the courtyard, and start preaching publicly that... Oh, the Jewish leaders who put him to death, by the way, he is the Messiah and he has resurrected from the dead, knowing that they're putting their life in danger, danger of beatings, danger of being jailed, and even danger of being killed. And they know what they're saying is a hoax. That's what we are asked to believe. But, of course, their cover-up about paying off the guards and saying we were asleep and they stole the body, it actually works inadvertently by giving much more credibility to the real story. That these guys not only preached, they went on preaching and went on preaching and were jailed and were beaten and most of them eventually were killed for their testimony. That, no, we touched him. We ate with him after he was killed. The real reason that people then or even today reject Jesus Christ is not because of a lack of evidence. It is because of a hard heart that has no desire to submit its life, its desires, its actions to the benevolent dictatorship of Jesus Christ. That's why. See, people who think that they have intellectual reasons for why they can doubt the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what they really need is a miracle that will cause them to get honest with themselves and go much deeper. All of us who have come to Christ were to grow in our appreciation of what's actually happened. To go deeper and just let the Scripture tell us what has happened. Don't have an experience and then close the book and say, here's how I interpret it. I just figured it out and got myself saved. You never would have come to Jesus if it were left to you no matter how strong the evidence because the thought for every one of us who are left in our sin the thought of loving and enjoying God more than loving and enjoying our sin and sinful lifestyles and the lust of our flesh is that's just unimaginable to our natural state of sin. That is the essence of our fallen nature. We cannot come to the resurrected Christ because we love the darkness too much. And that just means if there is no miraculous, otherworldly, supernatural intervention upon sinful hearts like ours, 
we can have the greatest evidence in the world for the resurrection of Jesus. And we would be left in unbelief and rationalization. The historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is proof of God's sovereign power in accomplishing salvation. The fulfilling justice against sins and the imputing perfect righteousness of Jesus the man to all who would believe that He was raised from the dead is God's affirmation in proof Christ has put away the sin of everybody who will ever believe in Him. But it also means, therefore, this. Not only did His death, affirmed by His resurrection, accomplish that, His death bought our new, soft heart so that we can believe when we hear that we can love the message of the Gospel as ours and thus know. I know Him. He lives in me. And then Paul stops us and says, but rather we have been known by Him from the foundation of the world. In the book of Ephesians, Paul argues that the very same God, the same Holy Spirit of God who historically and bodily resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that we're utterly dependent upon to see and believe. This is how he says it in Ephesians 1. And I pray, Paul says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may therefore know what is the hope to which He's called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of, listen to it, of His power toward us who do believe. That is, His power, which is according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Which is to say that if we are left to our own hardness of heart, then there's no hope. There's no hope that by our own power we can open our own blind eyes of loving sin and darkness more than the Gospel of Christ. Our eyes will not see in order to be saved. They won't get it that Whether I believe it or not, it's true. But now, by the Spirit, I know it. Not merely intellectually. But I know it because I know Him. Or rather, I am known by Him. Christ is risen indeed. This is what the eyewitnesses understood too. As the early Christians and the eyewitnesses of His resurrection went about proclaiming the cross, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the book of Acts, as Luke records what was happening, constantly points to the wonderful work of grace in those who are being saved. 
So for instance, in Acts 11, Luke records it this way. And when they heard the things that reported to them about the Gentiles, the Jewish leadership in the church there gathered together, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Well then, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. He didn't just say He granted them a chance if they can bring themselves to repentance. He said it with God's action. God granted repentance. In Acts 14, we read this, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And Luke records when Paul and the band go down to the river outside of Philippi, they find a group of women praying, and then Luke has his theology trained very well by the Apostle Paul. He says, The Lord opened Lydia's heart in order that she would pay attention to what was said by Paul. We will never fully appreciate what a special, loving grace it is that was purchased for us. That is meaning the grace that I believe no, 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 I mean, I, I believe that. I pray. I love Him, though I don't see Him. We will never grasp the depth of that grace until we own up to what a miracle that that saving faith and ongoing faith is. Yes, biblically, it's absolutely true. You must Hear the message of Jesus Christ. That you're a sinner deserving of a, of a just, perfect, holy wrath. And that God in fulfillment of Scriptures has sent His Son to live in your stead in perfect righteousness where Adam fell and on a cross to be nailed there where God would pour out His perfect wrath that was against you, but on Christ as your substitute. And that God raised Him from the dead. Now, the text in Scriptures tell us, you, you, no one else but you, must believe that message. You must welcome that. You must cling to Him in order to be saved. If you don't, you won't be saved. Absolutely true. But the Scripture doesn't stop there. It causes us to ask the question, why did a sin-riddled, darkness-loving, messed-up, evil, Joe LeMay do that at age 19. And the Bible lets us know that he never would have done that unless God did his work first to overcome Joe's or the Apostle Paul's or Peter's, not Judas's, hard heart, rebellious, darkness-loving, light-hating heart. And that's called in the New Testament, new birth. What Paul's talking about in Ephesians, and what I just read, or the way he will say it in chapter 2, we who believe, he says, you were 
dead. Dead spiritually. Dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you thus walked and followed after the course of this world, loving the darkness. And then he goes on to say, but God, but God acted. But God, being rich in mercy, because of how great you were. Wait, no, no, I didn't say it that way. Because of the great love that He had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, because of all that, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so when Paul talks like that throughout his letters, like in Ephesians, what he's saying is, This is the fulfillment of the new covenant promises of the Old Testament. Like Jeremiah and Ezekiel told us about. Just to taste, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 24, 600 years before Christ came, God speaks through. And I will give to them a heart to know that I am Yahweh. And they shall be My people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to Me with their whole heart. Or in Ezekiel 11, God says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit within them. I will take out the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that's soft and pliable. Why? So that they may walk in My statutes and keep My ordinances and obey them and they shall be My people and I will be their God. Or one more, Ezekiel 36 A new heart I will give to you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put My Spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in My statutes and to be careful to observe My ordinances. Christ came and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. He purchased the new heart. When we come to the New Testament, we see these texts of the new covenant in the Old Testament being fulfilled. You can call it new birth. You can call it regeneration. You can call it the call to those who are called. You justify. Come forth. The point is this. The new birth, it precedes saving faith. The new birth, regeneration in the Scripture, clearly precedes, causes, enables a heart of, I see, I love Him, He's mine, I'm saved. This is why Jesus said, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then He says again, Unless a person is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom, the rule, and the reign of Christ. Can't do it. So even though we hear the message of Jesus and the proclamation of His bodily, historical resurrection, none of us, left to ourselves, 
will have a pliable, fleshly, soft heart that would experience that message is aha I see that that is the greatest news ever nothing comes close Christ is God who bore my sin. Whether I'm nine or ninety, I'm dying. What's going to happen? And then, that heart, even though it may have heard the words of the Gospel all its life in church, one day, it was different. And just like Jesus, as you look around, where did that wind come from? You don't know, but it blew in your His. 1 John 5.1 is really clear on this. Real simple sentence. It's actually a complex sentence. So, but it goes this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The tenses in the Greek are crystal clear. Everyone who is believing present Tense, meaning present continuous action. This is who they are. This is their life. They are believing, trusting in Jesus that He is the Christ. John goes on. Present tense. Is that true? He says this. Here's the next verb. It's not present tense. It's a perfect tense. Meaning it's, it points to a past action or experience with ongoing effects. Everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Their believing is the evidence that God has caused them to be born anew. Faith is the evidence of new birth. Faith is not the cause of new birth. The very same power that raised the man, Jesus, from the dead bodily is the same power that God in His great love raises Sinners from spiritual death, from hard-heartedness toward Him to new hearts, to new life, to new birth, to alive to God as believers. God's grace, here's part of the gospel. God's grace is much greater than the hardest of hard hearts of our sinful nature. And that reality carried the Apostle Paul in his evangelism. It was important to Paul to understand this. It emboldened him to not be a seeker-sensitive preacher. It emboldened him, like a Bob, it emboldened him 
to do what Bob exhorted last week. Plant the seed. Don't substitute it or pervert it or try to help it along. Preach the gospel and let God grow it where He will. That drove Paul. Let me go to Paul to show you why. Here's Paul's philosophy of evangelism. 1 Corinthians 1. This is what we do. We preach. And he says, for Jews, what do they want? They demand signs. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. It made Jesus sick too. I ain't going to give you a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And you're going to still be rock hard. When guards come to you and tell you what actually happened, you're going to harden your heart and pay people off to tell a lie. Paul knew this. So we preach throughout cities. And Jews demand signs. And the Greeks, they seek wisdom. And we don't cater to them. But we preach. Okay, even preaching itself is a strange thing, which many evangelicals want to get away with. They want to get, excuse me, they think they're being cool by let's jettison preaching. Let's just do that all together because that's preachy. We don't want to do that. We don't have conversation. We preach, we proclaim. Christ. Put up against a wall in a firing squad. That's our Savior. That's what we preach. It brutalized, punished, tortured, crucified man. We preach Christ crucified. And Paul says, I know this is the result of having that philosophy of ministry. It is this. Our message is a stumbling block to the Jews. And they fall flat on their face. And they don't believe it. And to the non-Jews, it is stupid. It's foolishness to them. But, and this is what he knew, and this is what empowered him, but to those who are called, he knows that in his preaching, some will hear a supernatural call that comes from God alone in the hearing of the gospel being preached by man. But to those who are called, both among Jews and among non-Jews, the Greeks, the Gentiles, to them something happens. Christ, to them, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, I'm closing. If Jesus and the Gospel message which is there is no salvation from your sin. There is no joy after death without or apart from you being saved by Jesus on the cross, conquering your death in His resurrection, promising your future resurrection. 
if that Jesus, if that Gospel message is not a treasure to you. I didn't say, if you don't affirm that it's true, of children raised in Christian families in Christian church and Sunday school of course are going to affirm that's true. They're going to start coming through their crisis in their teenage years. I'm not asking that. I'm asking. If that's not a treasure to you, whether you are in your 60s, 20s, 40s, in your single digits, or a teenager, you can do this. You can cry out to the Creator of the universe in light of what you heard and beg Him to change your heart. And when the same Spirit that 2,000 years ago raised a dead human being, the Lord Jesus, up to resurrected, new, immortal, physical life, you will then have realized that same Spirit has made me alive. He's my treasure. I now see. And you will find your heart embracing with great joy the solid historical evidence of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can see then what the Apostle Paul wrote We preach. And the God of this world, all around us, in our families, on our teams, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our cities, the God of this world is blinding the eyes of the unbelieving. But Paul says to you who believe, in the creation of the world, the very God who said with His words, let there be light, He is the one who has shown or shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the Gospel in the face of the truth of Christ suffering, dying, and rising from the dead. And that's our message. And so I say to you now, stand with me. And if you believe the eyewitness testimonies that Christ is risen, then... Say it after me. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Jesus our Savior is risen. Hallelujah. Oh Father, in this last part, for every soul in here, would You We beg of You that every soul will be made alive to Christ. In a moment, like the wind, You save wretched sinners like me. You save scumbags like Paul. You save deceived religious folk. You save the hardest of hearts. Because, Jesus, You purchased that new life on the cross.
And so, in this room and through this church, we ask of you to continue to glorify your name in the new life that comes only from your cross, from your will, and from your purpose. Amen and amen.